Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In September of 1894, 38-year-old Benjamin Peitzel sat drinking alone in his Philadelphia home, as he often did. He knew he was living his life incorrectly, but he had no idea how to stop. Lies piled on top of lies. Harebrained schemes with disastrous consequences. He didn't know what his legacy was, if he even had one at all. For over a decade, he'd borne the weight of his deceit. Now, he wasn't sure he could go on any longer. He took a drink and felt the warmth spread from his chest to his extremities. The world no longer made sense, unless it was spinning. Now that he was drunk, he could finally do what needed to be done. He looked around the room and crossed his eyes, trying to focus. It was a mess of half-finished projects and chemicals he couldn't pronounce. All of it belonged to his partner, soon to be his former partner. They were almost done. One last big job, and then the two of them could part ways forever. He heard the door creak open downstairs. Soon, it would all be over. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a podcast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free exclusively on Spotify. To stream Solved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. Benjamin served for years as the right-hand man of H.H. Holmes, a con man who dragged Benjamin even deeper into his shady schemes. This week, we'll delve into Benjamin's life of crime, his association with Holmes, and his mysterious death. In part two, we'll follow the chaotic investigation into Benjamin's murder and discuss how things went from bad to worse for the Peitzel family. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search to die for in your podcast app to follow the show. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On the morning of September 3rd, 1894, Eugene Smith, an experienced carpenter and wannabe inventor, hobbled up to the office of Benjamin F. Perry. Years earlier, Smith invented a device that could easily install new teeth into old handsaws. The invention had obsessed him, and in August, he'd finally decided to do something about it. That was when he'd approached the Philadelphia office of Benjamin Perry, a man whose office sign announced that he bought and sold patents. Smith found Benjamin eager to help him with his invention at first. But it had been several days since they last spoke, and Smith got the sense that he was being strung along. As he approached Benjamin's office on September 3rd, he was determined to give the man a piece of his mind. He knocked several times and waited for Benjamin to show himself. When there was no answer, he called out in a hoarse voice. Still, there was no response. He knocked once more before trying the shabby door. It was unlocked. Smith cautiously turned the knob and called out. The house was silent. Smith grunted and left. He knew Benjamin liked to drink so he decided to try the nearby saloon. Good morning, my friend. Can I get you a drink? Not today, thanks. I'm looking for Benjamin Perry. Have you seen him? Benjamin? Hmm, he hasn't been here in a couple of days. Not since Saturday, I think. Are you sure? Thought he came by here quite often. (laughs) Quite often is an understatement. Since he rolled into town, he's been my best customer. If you find him, please tell him to come back. Next round's on me. After inquiring about Benjamin at the saloon, Smith decided to return home and resume his search the next day. On the morning of September 4th, he once again showed up outside Benjamin's door. Smith knocked on the door to no response. Curious, he stepped inside the house. As he neared the stairs, his nose was filled by the sickening smell of decay. The stench seeped into his mouth, nearly making him wretch, and he realized something was very wrong. Smith held his breath and dragged himself up the stairs. When he reached the landing, he froze. The room around him was a mess of beakers and powder, some kind of chemical laboratory, but Smith had no idea what its purpose could be. He might have investigated further, if it weren't for the decaying body of Benjamin Perry lying in front of him. Benjamin's face was charred black in places, and his belly was horribly bloated. The sight was even worse than the smell, but Smith stared for a long moment, unable to look away. When at last he managed to turn and limp down the stairs, he knew it was already too late. He hurried as best he could down to the corner drugstore, where he alerted Dr. William Scott. Dr. Scott followed Smith back to the horrifying scene. Benjamin had been dead for at least a day, as his body had already begun decomposing. 
Burns marked his face and a broken bottle of benzene laid next to a pipe nearby. At first glance, it appeared Benjamin had accidentally caused an explosion when he attempted to light his pipe too close to the flammable benzene. One account suggested that Dr. Scott first thought the shockwave from the resulting explosion burst Benjamin's bladder. But investigators would soon start to doubt that theory as they closely examined the scene. And they would soon discover that Benjamin Perry wasn't all he seemed to be. His real name was Benjamin Peitzel, and he wasn't a patent salesman. He was a lifelong con man and petty criminal. Six years earlier, in 1888, a desperate Benjamin Peitzel packed up his belongings and his wife, Carrie, in quite a hurry. Benjamin, what are you doing? Packing. We have to go. Now. Go where? Why? Chicago. It's not far. Is this about the men who were here earlier? The law is after me, Carrie. It's all a misunderstanding, but I can't afford to get locked up. Go get the children. I can't just drop everything. Yes, you can. I'll explain on the way, but we have to go. Our lives depend on it, Carrie. At age 32, novice criminal Benjamin Peitzel allegedly fled the authorities to start a new life in the big city with his wife and children. He wasn't the only man on the run looking for anonymity in Chicago. Not long after Benjamin moved to Chicago, he met a fast-talking charmer by the name of H.H. Holmes. How do you do, friend? I do better with some work, sir. I see. What can you do? I'll scrub floors, haul goods, whatever it takes. I'm not too proud to do any sort of honest work. And what about dishonest work? You pay me a fair wage, you can consider it done. Hmm. If you're serious, then I have a job for you. But it won't be pretty. I need to know I can trust you. Yes, sir. On the surface, Holmes appeared to be a caring doctor and enterprising businessman who operated a drugstore in the Englewood neighborhood. But like Benjamin, there was more to Holmes than met the eye. Ever since he'd come to Chicago in 1886, Holmes had spent his time running scams and indulging in get-rich-quick schemes. He was constantly opening phony businesses and embarking on grand projects in the hopes of bilking over-eager investors. As such, Holmes needed a small army of typists, lawyers, and part-time employees to make his operations seem legitimate. That was where Peitzel came in. After working odd jobs for Holmes for several years, Holmes came to rely on Benjamin as his second-in-command. There was no job too small or too shady for Benjamin to be involved in. He tended to stay in the background, deferring to Holmes, but he had no qualms about getting his hands dirty if need be. By the early 1890s, the two men had developed a strong relationship. Given the nature of their work, it's likely they could never truly trust each other, but they did see eye to eye most of the time. Mr. Peitzel, just the man I wanted to see. Bet you've never heard that before, have you? Ha ha ha! What can I do for you, doctor? Well, as you can see from this office, I'm starting another business. I need a man on the ground to help me scrounge up some investors. All right, what's the game? You have to see this device, Benjamin. It's ingenious. It can copy anything exactly. Drawings, books, whatever you can think of. Impressive. 
you don't know the half of it. Now, here's a list of investors to contact. My business partner, Mr. Thomas Bryan, has excellent credit. Throw his name around and you're certain to get some bites. And this Mr. Bryan gave you permission to use his name? Given our long-standing relationship, I'm going to let that question slide. You are one of the few men I truly consider to be a partner. Don't take advantage of my trust by sticking your nose where it doesn't belong. Understood. In 1891, Holmes asked 35-year-old Benjamin to join his biggest enterprise yet, the ABC Copier Company. Holmes bought a stake in the business alongside entrepreneur Thomas Bryan, but it's more than likely he was never really interested in selling copiers. With the help of Benjamin, Holmes used Bryan's stellar credit to procure investments and manufacturing parts. Sometimes, the raw materials were sold for a quick profit, while the investments were pocketed by Holmes and Benjamin. But the scam didn't stop at defrauding investors. Holmes and Benjamin also granted so-called exclusive rights for salesmen to peddle the copiers in a certain city or state, for a small fee, of course. Now, Mr. Blanche, you'd like the rights to sell ABC copiers in Ohio, is that correct? Yes, sir. It would be a pleasure to go into business with you. Excellent. Well, as it just so happens, I have the rights right here. All you have to do is sign this. After that, just deliver the fee to my associate Benjamin here, and the copiers are all yours. Thank you. Now, I'm not much for reading, so uh, just before I sign, I'd like to make sure. This would make me the only man allowed to sell these copiers in the state, right? Absolutely correct. Pleasure doing business with you. What a rube! <laughs> Is the next one here yet? Yes, he's right outside. He's also looking for the rights in Ohio. <laughs> oh, beautiful! Send him in. The word exclusive meant nothing to Holmes and Benjamin, and they sold the rights to the same territory repeatedly. But the gravy train had to stop sometime. Eventually, the investors and salesmen realized they were getting conned. They soon came looking for revenge. When we return, Benjamin Peitzel and H.H. H. Holmes find themselves in hot water. Carter here. Have you heard about ParCast's newest series yet? It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join my good friend, host Alastair Merton, as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who makes deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. 
When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to our story. After moving to Chicago in 1888, Benjamin Peitzel began working seedy jobs for notorious con man H.H. Holmes. In 1891, the pair defrauded a legitimate copier company to con investors and salesmen alike. But their tactics weren't exactly subtle, and soon angry entrepreneurs were swarming the office, searching for Holmes and 35-year-old Benjamin. Luckily for Benjamin, Holmes took most of the heat, as Benjamin wasn't officially a partner in the copy company. But Benjamin's name did appear on some legal documents, which caused him to be mentioned in at least one lawsuit. While it's unclear exactly how his name ended up on the documents, it's possible that Holmes forged his signature. Such an act would have been a harsh reminder that Benjamin couldn't afford to trust anyone in the criminal underworld. He knew Holmes wasn't a man of his word, but he likely didn't expect that he himself would be subject to Holmes' double-crossing. Ultimately, however, Benjamin didn't dwell on the legal trouble. He'd probably already spent the money they'd stolen, and it didn't matter how many court orders they received, they were never going to pay it back. By the time their business with the ABC Copier Company concluded, Holmes and Peitzel were already focused on other schemes. They launched a series of enterprises, one that claimed to manufacture medicine, one that claimed to change water into natural gas, and even some that simply sold odd knickknacks. Benjamin appears to have contentedly followed Holmes' lead, as long as he didn't have to be the face of the enterprise. Benjamin wasn't a very attractive or charming man, and he knew it. Perhaps this is partly why he preferred to remain in the shadows and didn't make a habit of socializing with too many people. As a result, he spent a lot of time alone. He drank, and he drank more and more as each year passed. At one point, he even claimed to have received clinical treatment for his alcoholism. Apparently, the treatment didn't work. The more Benjamin drank, the deeper involved he became in Holmes' schemes, and the more isolated he became. It's possible that Holmes could tell their operations were taking their toll on Benjamin, but that would have suited Holmes just fine. He needed a worker who wouldn't ask too many questions, and one who would do his dirty work for him. The extent to which Benjamin and Holmes' personal lives became intertwined is unclear, but Benjamin certainly knew his partner had mistresses. In fact, Benjamin may have courted one of his own. <laughs> oh, it's cold! Just be careful. That stuff's not cheap, you know. Benjamin, come have a drink with us, will you? I think you're mistaken, Holmes, calling me Benjamin. Oh, of course. How silly of me. Emmeline, I want you to meet my associate, Mr... Phelps. Yes, of course. Mr. Phelps. Phelps, this is my enchanting new typist, Emmeline. Nice to meet you. The pleasure is all mine. In the spring of 1892... Holmes hired 24-year-old Emmeline Sigrin to work as a typist for his latest enterprise. He planned to rip off a popular and ineffective treatment for alcoholism known as the Gold Cure. 
At the time, there was a clinic for alcoholics not far from Chicago in the small town of Dwight, Illinois. Patients there were injected with a patent medicine containing bichloride of gold, which claimed to cure alcohol addiction. It was the same treatment that Benjamin had previously received. It's possible he even gave Holmes the idea to found a knockoff company. They called the phony business the Silver Ash Institute. Instead of using a supposed gold component, they intended to use silver, making the venture even more cost-effective. Ultimately, the scheme never really took off, but it did introduce Benjamin to Emmeline Sigrand. Over the next year, Emmeline may have had an affair with 36-year-old Benjamin. She told her friends that she was in love with a man named Robert Phelps, a common alias that Benjamin was suspected of using. It's also possible Emmeline was secretly seeing Holmes instead, as he generally had more luck with women than Benjamin. Unfortunately, there's no way to know, as the affair lasted less than a year before Emmeline mysteriously disappeared. Holmes told people that Emmeline had run off with another man to get married, while Benjamin, as usual, kept quiet about the affair. Regardless of what happened to Emmeline, it seems Benjamin didn't dwell on her departure for long. Almost as soon as she was gone, he and Holmes were already deep into another bold scam. That should be the last of it. Excellent work, as always. It's the least I could do after all your recent assistance. Yes, and now that our other business has been taken care of, we're free to continue on our next big project. What is it this time? Are we going to steal candy from schoolchildren? Don't be ridiculous, Benjamin. It's far easier to steal from grown men. They think they're too smart to be tricked. Where are we going to find adults eating that much candy? Very funny. You just follow my lead. I'm off to a business meeting. We're opening a hotel. With the World's Fair set to begin in May of 1893, Holmes, with some likely help from Benjamin, decided to open a hotel. While it looked like he wanted to take advantage of the impending tourism boom, they weren't exactly targeting the visiting fairgoers. Instead, he was more interested in defrauding the amateur investors, clamoring to take advantage of the new business opportunity. Many were all too eager to shell out cash without doing their due diligence. Holmes and Benjamin were happy to take it off their hands. The two of them began approaching rich men all over town, telling them they were opening a hotel in preparation for the fair. Then they used a combination of real and forged letters of credit to purchase construction materials and sell them for a profit. While Holmes handled most of the business matters, Benjamin did as he was told and continued to scrape by doing odd jobs throughout the city. But when he wasn't working with Holmes, he was often out drinking, which didn't always sit well with his wife. Benjamin, is that you? Let me in. I, I need to use the bathroom. Jesus, you're drunk. You know I had to put the kids to bed all by myself again. I hope you were out working. Yes, yes. I'm shameless. I really do have to go, though, darling, so if you could just stand aside... We're starving and you're out drinking our money away. You have no idea what I deal with. The awful things I've done for this family. You don't know the half of it. Well, I certainly know all the horrible things you've done to this family. 
My god, what is that smell? I told you. I had to use the bathroom. Carrie Peitzel didn't approve of her husband's criminal activities, but with no other source of income, she had no choice but to accept the money Benjamin earned. So whether she liked it or not, Benjamin now, nearly 37, continued to develop the World's Fair Hotel with homes. They had the shell of a structure built on top of a building homes already owned to fool the investors. But in reality, none of the rooms were ever furnished, and it's unlikely they ever received any guests. Instead, it seems they used the floor to hide their stolen goods from repo men and angry creditors. It worked well at first, but as time went on, the scheme became less lucrative. As the World's Fair neared its end in the fall of 1893, Holmes and Benjamin ran out of new investors to cheat. Both of them were itching for a fresh start. Despite their endless cons, the men didn't have much money to show for their efforts, and Holmes was tangled up in countless lawsuits. Once again, Benjamin had gotten the short end of the stick. Because the phony hotel was built on top of Holmes' building, he'd taken the lion's share of the profits. But Benjamin was constantly having to do the menial work and possibly face just as much liability when things went south. When Holmes unilaterally decided to abandon the hotel project, Benjamin may have felt disillusioned with Holmes. He might have even been jealous of his friend. While the hotel was being built, Holmes courted yet another mistress, a former actress named Minnie Williams. But by the time he and Benjamin decided to abandon the hotel project, Holmes claimed that she too had left town. For God's sake, Benjamin, slow down. I need you focused today. Mind your own business. I feel great. Benjamin, I'm a true friend. You know I don't care if you drink yourself to death. Just try and do it after noon today. I need you to help me move some things out of the hotel. What kinds of things? Heavy things and locked trunks. Things I will pay good money to be carried down the stairs. You know who I miss? That girl you used to bring around. What was her name? Minnie? You do not say that name in public, Benjamin. You're drunk. You have two hours to get it together. Around August of 1893, Holmes reportedly had Benjamin help him clear heavy trunks out of his fake World's Fair hotel. Later, many would speculate about the incriminating evidence the trunks may have contained. Whether or not they held anything damning, something big must have pushed Holmes to act soon after he allegedly set fire to his own building. This was just the beginning of Holmes' drastic attempt to destroy all traces of his life in Chicago. Over the next few months, he worked to tie up all his loose ends in the city. He pushed Benjamin to do the same. Despite the strained relationship between them, Benjamin did as he was told, as always. Without letting his wife know where he was going, Benjamin fled Chicago sometime after the fire. He traveled to Indiana, taking part in some noted scams along the way. A beautiful suit. Will that be all for you, sir? Yes, it will. Do you take checks? From out-of-towners? Not normally. My apologies. No, I understand, but I'm in a bit of a bind. The suit is for my father's funeral. I went to the bank down the street earlier. I have the check right here. 
You can see the confirmation stamp. It's all on the up and up. I see. Well, it's after banking hours, but I suppose we can make an exception. Oh, thank you so much. It's nice to know there are still good people in the world. Benjamin bounced from city to city using fake checks to steal expensive suits and then selling them in the neighboring town. For weeks, Benjamin crisscrossed the state until he was finally caught holding several thousand dollars worth of hot checks. In October, his wife Carrie was shocked to receive a letter from a lawyer informing her that Benjamin was in jail. It was the first time she'd heard from her husband in over a month. However, she either couldn't or wouldn't pay his bond. Benjamin spent more than a month in jail until he finally convinced Holmes to bail him out. He returned to Chicago with his tail between his legs. Holmes, what are you doing here? That's how you greet a friend? I've come to pick you up, of course. Sorry, I, I was just surprised. Thank you. Of course. I couldn't have gotten out of that hellhole without you. Certainly not. Lucky for you, I know how you can make it up to me. I just got back in town. Can it wait? If it could wait, I would have let you wait in prison. I got you out for a reason. You owe me. I should have known. You don't have a decent bone in your body, do you? The only bones you should be concerned about are the brittle ones in your knee. That's if you don't do exactly as I say. You're playing with fire, Holmes. Benjamin owed his friend for bailing him out, and Holmes was not one to leave a debt uncollected. A short time later, Benjamin left Chicago again. Only this time, he wouldn't be coming back. Coming up, Benjamin Peitzel runs his final scam. And now, back to our story. In early 1894, 37-year-old Benjamin Peitzel left Chicago for Texas. He and his young son, Howard, met Benjamin's associate, H.H. Holmes, along with Holmes' latest mistress, Georgiana, in Fort Worth. Holmes told Benjamin he was planning on taking possession of some property in the city that had once belonged to his previous lover, Minnie Williams. Minnie had disappeared months earlier, and now Holmes wanted to claim her land. The deed to Minnie's property had been expertly forged, and the duo began constructing a new building there, seemingly with the purpose of scamming local investors. Holmes, along with Georgiana, stayed in Fort Worth for a few months with Benjamin and his son. Unfortunately, Holmes and Benjamin weren't satisfied with their stolen property. They quickly got themselves in trouble with local law enforcement after their usual scams were discovered. On the run from authorities, Benjamin and Holmes fled Texas, first heading to St. Louis and eventually making it to Philadelphia in August of 1894. Benjamin rented a shabby home that doubled as an office and began posing as a patent salesman. It's possible this business was a belated attempt by Benjamin to go straight, but more than likely it was all part of another scam meant to steal inventions from the locals. Whatever Benjamin's intentions, as usual, they were sidetracked by H.H. Holmes and yet another get-rich-quick scheme which had already been in the works prior to their time in Philadelphia. Benjamin, 
I finally perfected my masterpiece. It's brilliant. It's easy. And best of all, it will pay a fortune. Absolutely not. I've done everything you've asked. I've more than paid my debt. I've had enough. Benjamin, this isn't about some debt. This is a partnership. I want to make us both rich. What makes this one any different from the dozens of failed schemes we've tried over the years? Perhaps if you heard me out, then you'd understand. One last legendary con, bigger than all the others. The last one, you swear? I guarantee it. After everything's said and done, you'll never see me again. The plan was for Holmes to procure a medical cadaver that roughly resembled Benjamin. Then they would pose the body to make it look as if it had died in an explosion. That way, Holmes claimed he could disfigure the face enough to make the corpse a dead ringer for Benjamin. Meanwhile, Benjamin would flee the city and hide out until after the insurance payout was collected. If they could convince the insurance company that the death had been an accident, then it meant easy money for them both. Eventually, Holmes convinced Benjamin the scheme was a good idea, but Benjamin didn't know that the plan would go awry. Instead of a faceless cadaver being found in his place, Benjamin himself wound up dead. On September 4th, Benjamin's body was discovered in his Philadelphia patent office. The first doctor on the scene, William Scott, is said to have initially theorized that Benjamin's bladder had burst after trying to light his pipe near a bottle of benzene. After police arrived, things became a little more murky. Dr. Scott, I'm Officer Swanson. What have you found? It looks like the poor man died during an accidental explosion. You don't sound too sure. Well, it is possible the concussion killed this man, but not everything adds up. Was the pipe laying exactly like this when you arrived? Yes, I haven't touched anything other than the victim. Why? Something about the angle doesn't seem right. Wouldn't you expect it to be farther away? It's almost pointed a little too deliberately towards his mouth. Yes, I see what you mean. There's also the matter of this benzene bottle. It's shattered. Indeed, but notice that all the glass is lying inside the vial. If there was an explosion, I'd expect the glass to be scattered outward. Curious. Did you know this man at all? No, not very well. He only moved here about a month ago. I hate to speak ill of the dead, but I have to say there was always something about him that rubbed me the wrong way. We'll have an autopsy performed on the double. The examination only made matters more mysterious. Doctors found evidence that Benjamin had died quickly, which was possibly consistent with a death by explosion. However, they also found liquid chloroform in his stomach. Chloroform was a common anesthetic at the time, but it wasn't easy for an untrained person to administer. At first, examiners believed Benjamin might have died by suicide after ingesting the chloroform, but there was no irritation in his stomach lining. That suggested that the chloroform was somehow ingested after his death. In the end, doctors agreed that there was no way Benjamin could have died by suicide and posed himself in the deliberate way that he was found. They recommended the police open up a murder investigation. Unfortunately, their advice was inexplicably ignored. 
At the time, the law required a group of ordinary townsfolk, known as a coroner's jury, to rule on the cause of death whenever a dead body was found. In practice, this usually meant that the jury, whose members didn't have any medical training of their own, deferred to the doctor's recommendations. But in this case, the coroner's jury overruled the men who performed the autopsy and determined that Benjamin Peitzel had died by accidental explosion. It's not known why the jury contradicted the doctors. They may have found it hard to believe that someone would go to so much trouble to fake Benjamin's death in such an absurd manner. This decision simply allowed Peitzel's killer to walk free. And while Peitzel's killer wandered the country, Peitzel's business partner, H.H. Holmes, and his mistress, Georgiana, had already left Philadelphia. They arrived in St. Louis, just as the coroner's investigation was taking place and visited the rest of the Peitzel family, who had recently relocated there. (gasps) Mrs. Peitzel? Oh, Mr. Holmes, have you heard the news? It's horrible. Yes, I came to check on you. It's just like Benjamin to abandon me like this. I keep waking up in the middle of the night, expecting to see him staggering home from the bar. Mr. Holmes, you've got to help us. That's exactly what I'm here to do. Now, you know that Benjamin and I were partners of a certain kind, don't you? I know that you two were always up to no good. (gasps) Did you have something to do with this? Absolutely not. Please keep your voice down. Mrs. Peitzel, Benjamin and I had a plan. A plan for him to disappear this month. What are you saying? I'm saying that your husband, God bless him, is very much still alive. Right now, he's in a secure location, hiding. Hiding from what? From everyone. For your sake, I took out a life insurance policy on him. I need someone from your family to come to Philadelphia with me to identify the body. Once you do, we'll get paid. Then you and your husband start a new life together, rich as kings. Oh, Mr. Holmes, is it really true? Benjamin's alive? I swear it. Holmes successfully convinced Carrie Peitzel that her husband was still alive and in hiding. He told her that he needed a member of the family to identify the body so they could collect the money. Because Carrie was sick at the time, she decided to send her 15-year-old daughter, Alice, to identify the body along with Holmes. So by September 20th, 1894, two weeks after the body was found, Alice and Holmes arrived in Philadelphia. Holmes couldn't be happier. He believed he was about to be a very rich man. But investigators weren't done looking into the death of Benjamin Peitzel. The last big con had only just begun. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on Benjamin Peitzel, Among the many sources we used, we found the book H.H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil by Adam Selzer, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Solve Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Solved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Terrell Wells with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, Kimlin Tran, and Dan Velasquez. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Killer nurses, deranged doctors, mad scientists. Don't forget to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>